Hi there and welcome to Plant CEO. In today's episode, I'd like to welcome my guest, Captain Paul Watson, the founder of Sea Shepherd, and was just featured on the Netflix documentary, Sea Spiracy. Hi, Paul, and welcome to the show. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, it's great that you've taken the time considering that it's, uh, it's literally just come out this week. So appreciate you being here with me. Um, so just to start with, I think let's put the documentary into some context by looking at what the actual problem is. So 2.7 trillion fish are mass slaughtered each year. In the documentary, it stated that there will be no more fish left in the oceans by 2048. However, based on your observations, you think it's more like 2030. That basically just gives us nine years. What's also crazy to me is that 40% of all fish um, that's used by the meat industry is used to feed animals such as cows, pigs, and chickens. This clearly is a massive global issue that will impact everyone. What do you believe um, the solutions are at the moment? Well, I think that the only solution that we can uh, have if we're going to deal with this properly is to have a 50-year moratorium on all commercial industrialized fishing. We have to shut it down. The ocean needs uh, the time to repair the damage that's been done to it. Uh, the prediction that we'll have no more fish by 2048, that comes from Dr. Boris Worm and Dr. Daniel Pauly, the two foremost uh, fishery biologists on the planet. And uh, that's their prediction. I think they're being actually optimistic because we've, we've seen the destruction that's happened, say, since 1950. Uh, in addition to uh, you know, the diminishment of fish, we've had about a 20% diminishment of phytoplankton populations in the ocean. And uh, phytoplankton is the basis for life on the planet. It provides up to 70% of the oxygen we breathe. So if the phytoplankton uh, goes extinct, we do too. And if the ocean dies, well, then we do too. Yeah, I, I love your analogy in the documentary, the Earth uh, being a spaceship. Well, the Earth is, in reality, a spaceship. It's on this incredible voyage around the Milky Way galaxy going at a terrific speed. And, uh, but every spaceship has a life support system. And that life support system provides us with the food we eat, the air we breathe, and regulates climate and temperature. And that life support system is uh, run and maintained by, uh, by a crew, a crew of living things. Not us. We humans, we're passengers. We're having a wonderful time amusing ourselves. But what we are doing is we're killing off crew members. And there's only so many crew members you can kill before the machinery begins to break down and the life support system collapses. And, you know, the trees, the fish, the phytoplankton, uh, the worms, the bees, uh, we need these, uh, these beings. If, and if we don't learn to live in harmony with them, then we're not going to survive ourselves. because the three basic laws of ecology is first, the law of diversity, that the strength of an ecosystem is dependent upon diversity within it. Two, that the, the law of interdependent, that all those species are interdependent with each other. And three, the law of finite resources, that there's a limit to growth, a limit to carrying capacity. And when we steal the carrying capacity from other species, that causes their numbers and diversity to diminish. And that contributes towards the diminishment of the, the life support system. So why do you think that humans basically see themselves as the center of the universe and want to be able to conquer every other species? Well, thousands of years ago, we uh, 
move from a biocentric point of view, which is still practiced by some indigenous cultures today, which uh, says that we're part of nature, we're part of everything, we're equal to everything, uh, we're part of the whole. Uh, but we, we switch to this anthropocentric point of view, which is we're the best, we're dominant, we're the center of creation. Uh, and then we created all these religions, which are all every single major religion in the world puts humans as the center of everything. And uh, it's that kind of, um, uh, oh, I guess it's very uh, egocentric. I, I sort of said that we've become a bunch of uh, conceited naked apes who have become divine legends in our own mind. <laughs> but uh, we're not gonna survive unless we uh, return to that biocentric point of view uh, and understand that we're just part of everything. We're not dominant over it. Yeah, and I think uh, you know you. I have my own sort of uh, analogy on that on that sort of concept, the spaceship concept. I, I feel that our planet has caught COVID nineteen, and um, it's basically on death's door at the moment. And that the vaccine, um, in a minimum, that everyone can do is basically just to have more plant based meals a week. Most of the diseases that we have, uh, you know, come from animals, domestic animals. A common cold, a coronavirus, comes from horses. Flu comes from pigs and from uh, from birds. And COVID is coming from, uh, you know, bats maybe, and uh, there's other animals that are associated, but they're closely related to us. So the viruses have to go somewhere, and they're coming to us now. The virus, a virus, doesn't want to kill the host, but uh, while it uh, you know, I'm, I'm talking like it has some sort of conscience, but it doesn't. But, uh, but <laughs> the, thing, the thing is, is it doesn't. The, the intent is not to kill the host. It's it's to, to develop a coexistence. But in the process, uh, a lot of the hosts are killed in the you know while that's taking place until that, that coexistence is developed. You know, we had the bubonic plague, and you know, it killed millions and millions of people. But then we developed this uh, a coexistence. So the bubonic plague still is uh, exists but it doesn't have the devastating impact that it did uh, 500 years ago. Can you expand a little bit about the photo plantings? Because, you know, obviously there's the big devastation with these trawling ships that are scraping the coral and, and those, but the carbon that is captured from it is so many times greater than, than what's been captured from, from the Amazon. So, you know, what, what are your thoughts around that? Well, this really is the water planet. Uh, it is the ocean that is the life support system. And phytoplankton is uh, the foundation of life on the entire planet. And phytoplankton, these plant species that live in, um, in the ocean, require uh, nutrients, uh, primarily nitrogen and iron. And uh, that is supplied by whales and dolphins and seabirds and fish. It's the fecal material that's put, put into the ocean. Uh, you know, every day one blue whale uh, uh, defecates three tons of manure, which floats on the surface, which uh, provides a uh, nutrient base for phytoplankton. When you reduce whale, dolphin, seabird, and sea turtles and, other, and marine life uh, numbers, you, you cause a diminishment in the supply of, of those nutrients, which is therefore contributing to the decline in, uh, in the phytoplankton populations. So uh, the phytoplankton feeds the zooplankton, the zooplankton feeds the fish, the fish feed other fish, and it goes on right up uh, off the line. So uh, we're, we're interfering with that. Uh, right now there's plans by Norway and Japan to do mass uh, harvesting, as they call it, of uh, zooplankton in the, in the Southern Ocean, uh, taking literally you know, uh, millions of tons of, uh, of zooplankton out. And what for? Uh, the purpose would be to turn it into a protein paste uh, for livestock to feed animals. So a very large percentage of the fish that's caught already uh, is rendered into fish meal. 
which is then uh, used to feed uh, pigs and uh, chickens and uh, domestic salmon and on and on. Uh, so, you know, even when you eat a, ham a hamburger, even when you eat uh, a chicken, you're eating fish, really, in a way. That's a bit strange, isn't it? Because even if, for example, there's um, vegetarians and they think the cow is, you know, just eating grass, <laughs> uh, but in fact, they're having fish meal and, and uh, soya and, all, all, you know, all these other things that, that, you know, to produce the milk. And it just, you know, seems really crazy. Well, we're actually living in a world where chickens are eating more fish than all the albatrosses and puffins put together on the planet. Pigs are eating more fish than sharks. Um, in, uh, in fact, domestic house cats are eating more fish than all the seals in the North Atlantic Ocean. You know, 2.8 million tons, I think, goes into cat food every year. So it's amazing. And it's not even a natural food for the cats. But uh, so it's a combination of ours and our domestic animals that are, are, are consuming all of this. Yeah, there's lots of innovation happening um, in the food tech space. You know, you can have plant-based alternatives for fish products using jackfruit or banana blossom or even tomatoes that look like salmon. Um, and then you also have the, the, the scientific, more cell-based approach too. Do you see this as a key driver as change? Well, I think that certainly is the future. If you look at any science fiction film, even Star Trek or whatever like this, uh, the future is uh, is vegan, and uh, because they realize that uh, there's a limit to those uh, resources, you simply can't have uh, eight billion, ten billion, twelve billion meat-eating, fish-eating primates on the planet. It's uh, just uh, puts everything out of balance. It just doesn't. Uh, it's just not going to work. I mean, hunter-gatherers eating uh, meat uh, twenty thousand years ago were not going to make a big impact on the planet, but uh, eight billion—that's that's a significant impact. Uh, so. That really is the problem. We're not. We have to. We have to evolve along with uh, the numbers as they grow and, and adapt to the environment where we can we, where we can fit in. Unfortunately, humans have this incredible ability to adapt to diminishment. As things become more diminished, we just accept that. Now, this worked really well twenty thousand years ago when you had to adapt to diminishment, but now it just doesn't make any sense. You know, if this is 1965 and I were to say, you know, in 40 years, you're going to be buying water in plastic bottles and paying more for that water than the equivalent amount of petrol, you'd look at me and say, well, nobody's going to do that. And yet here we are. We're, do we're doing that. Water, uh, you know, I was in a hotel in New York one time and there was, you could buy the bottle of water beside your bed, $12. That's, uh, that's $48 a gallon in a country where gasoline or sells for $4 a gallon. It's, it's absurd. And it's in New York City, which has one of the cleanest water, drinking water of any city on the, in the U.S. So, uh, in fact, it's so clean, they actually bottle that water and sell it in L.A. as New York City tap water. <laughs> but, um, but see, so we're adapting to that diminishment all the time. In the 90s, uh, you know, orange roughy, which is a fish caught off of New Zealand and everything, was in all the stores. It was very common. But the orange roughy takes about uh, 45 years to become sexually mature and lives to be 200 years of age. It couldn't keep up with the demand. So you don't see it anymore. But we just move on to another species and then on to another species. I mean, I was raised in a fishing village in Eastern Canada. And uh, one of the things back in the 50s and 60s, you know, nobody ate mussels. They were considered dirty because they grew on the, the wharfs and the piers and everything. But now that's what you get if you go back to my hometown. You, the order, you don't get uh, scallops, you don't get oysters, you get mussels. Uh, we just simply adapted to that. You don't get cod anymore, you get turbot, which was considered uh, a garbage fish back in the in the 60s but now that's uh, now th that's where we're going pollock is another example a tasteless fish really but they just decided well if we add chemicals taste 
and chemical dye, we can fake, we can sell it as fake crab and they call it surimi and then it sells. So um, they're constantly adapting ways of marketing this, like uh, toothfish, uh, Chilean and Arari toothfish, which is endangered. Uh, one of the campaigns we had was to stop that, the poaching of toothfish in the Southern Ocean. Um, you know, it's pretty hard to market. They, they changed the name. So they call that Chilean sea bass. It's not from Chile. It's not a bass, but it's a marketable term. And, uh, you know, they go, go from there. The same with, um, with uh, king crabs. It used to be called spider crabs and nobody ate them until they changed the names. Yeah. And, you know, in, in the documentary, uh, they spoke about uh, halibuts that, you know, in the 1830s, it took one boat basically to get uh, in one day, one and a half tons. And then if you look at that same amount today, it takes uh, the same to get the one and two tons, but it takes a whole fleet a year to get that. Uh, so you can see how much devastation that's caused in that period of time. Well, in 1910, uh, a North Atlantic codfish would average about one meter in length, and now today it's about 18 inches. Uh, so, you know, the, the, these are, fish live a long time. Like an orange roughy lives to be 200 years of age. A halibut can be lived 200 years of age. And, uh, but they never, get, uh, they never get very old in, in, in our world today because we, we, we catch them. Uh, and uh, so there's 4 million fishing vessels that are out on the ocean, and a good uh, percentage of them are operating illegally. And uh, the ocean just simply cannot sustain that kind of uh, assault. And one of the things that Seaspiracy uh, touches on is uh, piracy. And who are the real pirates? Uh, the so-called pirates of Somalia, they're, they're uh, basically fishermen who've been put out of work because of the invasion of the industrialized Asian and European fishing fleets, which or the real pirates came in and plundered everything, took all the resources. The same is now happening in West African waters and that. Uh, so you know, there is a basis for artisanal fishing, which is like, you know, people going out in their little boats and catch, catching fish. They're not the problem. The problem are these heavy industrialized fishing operations. And nobody really cares about the small fishermen. You know, back uh, a few years ago, the Norwegian trawler fleet went down the coast of India and took everything and put a million Indians out of work, Indian fishermen out of work. Nobody cared about it. It wasn't on the front page of the, new, of the papers, but if environmentalists interfere with an industrialized fishing operation, oh, well, you're threatening the lives, uh, livelihood of, uh, of these fishermen, you know? So it's all a very double standard on this thing. But the real, the real problem is, um, it's called, I call it the economics of extinction. There's money to be made by driving species into extinction. Now, an example, Mitsubishi has an, uh, in their warehouses right now enough bluefin tuna to supply the market for the next 10, 15 years. Uh, they, they could stop fishing right now and that market would still be supplied, but they won't do that because if bluefin populations begin to rise in the wild, then the value of the commodity in the warehouses begins to go down. And so scarcity translates into uh, profit. And, uh, and if it goes extinct, well, then they got a priceless commodity and you know, Mitsubishi is uh, not in the fishing industry. It's just all short-term investment for short-term gain. And we'll just recycle the money into something else. So they make, people make money off of investing in extinction. They, there's really very little thought given to the, to the future survival of many, of, uh, many species. It's a bit the same like, uh, you know, all companies who have their, they do it by country, right? They, they keep certain reserves for themselves to control the pricing. Yeah, it's a, well, that's a whole, a whole basis of our economic uh, system. And generally, there's a lack of political and economic will to go do anything about the illegal uh, fishing operations. 
Yeah. So moving into sort of the intelligence side of fish, uh, I'm sure you must have seen this. It was um, Sir David Attenborough's uh, life stories where they had this uh, puffer fish who basically created these beautiful mathematical designs um, in the sand during courtship. Um, these are great examples. Uh, being at sea yourself for so long, have you seen these examples yourself? Well, certainly if you're a diver, you, you can see that, uh, you know, they had these uh, cleaning stations where uh, uh, the fish show up, uh, big fish show up and little fish uh, clean their, their, their mouth and their teeth from parasites and everything. And what you can see there is that uh, the fish, some of the, the cleaners are actually greedy and some of them uh, are not that good. And then what you find is the larger fish don't go to them anymore. They, they you know, they almost like they have their favorite barber, really, you know, they go to <laughs> Uh, yeah. So they're very discriminatory in, in, in that way. And uh, so there's a lot of signs of intelligence uh, uh, in fish, certainly. Uh, you know, the problem here is that humans define intelligence by our eye-to-hand coordination and the ability to use tools. That's how we define intelligence. If a blob of protoplasm steps out of a spaceship with a ray gun, well, it obviously is intelligent because it's got technology. But uh, I measure intelligence by the ability to live in harmony with the natural environment. I was arguing with a Norwegian whaler one time. He says, well, Watson, you say that whales are more intelligent than fishes or more intelligent than people. This is a very, very stupid thing to say. And I said, well, because I measure intelligence by the ability to live in harmony with the environment. And he said, well, by that criteria, cockroaches are more intelligent than people. I said, you know, you're beginning to understand what I'm trying to tell you, <laughs> you know. Yeah. So we, we defined intelligence. You know, if anybody ever take biology 101, they'll have a like a, a rat brain and then a cat brain and a chimpanzee brain and a human brain. You may say you can see by the, the fact that our brain's bigger than the chimp, the chimp brain's bigger than the, the cat and the, and the convolutions on the neocortex area are more pronounced as you go up. That shows that we're more intelligent. But they never put an orca or sperm whale brain up there because it makes us look really stupid because they're larger and there are more convolutions on the neocortex area. Plus there's a fourth lobe to the brain. Uh, so they just don't put it up there. <laughs> but, uh, you know, when the human brain has 1700 cubic centimeters and, and you know, that's how big it is. Uh, the orca brain, 6,000 cubic centimeters and the sperm whale, the largest brain to have ever evolved on the planet. It's a 9,000 cubic centimeter brain. And in fact, we just had a report last week of uh, that uh, scientists believe that uh, sperm whales were actually communicating with other sperm whales back in the old days of whaling uh, to stay out of areas where whale whaling ships were operating. And they, were, they were sharing that information. Oh, wow. That's amazing. And I think um, when, you, when you think about, you know, uh, animals, I think they're generally more instinctive to the environment than humans are, because I think humans tend to not live in the present and they're either thinking about what happened in their past they're too much in their own mind or thinking about what's going to happen in the future whereas animals are very uh, aware of their environment for sure that's true one of the most valuable lessons that i've ever learned in my life was back in 1973 i was i volunteered to be a medic for the american indian movement during the occupation of wounded knee in south dakota and there was a, a protest over the fort laramie treaty and um, we were surrounded by 3,000 federal officers firing every night into town they wounded 46 killed two people and i went to russell means uh, who's the leader of the american indian movement i said look there's no hope of winning here the odds against us are overwhelming we just simply can't win 
And he told me something that stayed with me for the rest of my life. He said, well, we're not concerned about the odds against us. We're not concerned about winning or losing. We're here because this is the right thing to do, the right time to do it, and the right place to be. Don't focus on the future. Focus on the present. The present will define the future. What you do now will determine what the future will be. And uh, so that's what we do with uh, with Sea Shepherd. We, we don't really dwell on the future. We, we focus on what we can do now to uh, define what that future will be. So um, tell me more about your, your activities. So you, you now have, uh, you know, a large fleet, but in comparison to, you know, the amount of, of boats that are out there, the, the, you know, the 4.6 million, it's a big task for you, right? It, it is, but uh, we've become, uh, over the last uh, seven years, we've developed a new approach. Uh, so we're working in partnerships with various governments around the world. So we provide the volunteers and the resources and they provide the uh, the authority and the enforcement. So in Africa now, we're com- we're uh, partnered with uh, Tanzania and Namibia and Santomo, uh, Santomi and um, oh, Liberia and uh, Ghana and Gambia and Capo Verde. And what that means is that we go out there in their water and intercept poachers and the and we have their enforcement people on board and right. uh, we've i think we've arrested 65 poaching vessels in the last year and a half and uh in uh, south america we have official partnerships with uh peru panama uh mexico and uh in colombia in colombia we're protecting the mapello marine reserve in um, panama the coibe island marine reserve in mexico we're working with the mexican government to protect the endangered paquita porpoise and in peru we're working to oppose the um, destructive activities of the chinese fishing fleets in the eastern tropical pacific what's it going to take for you to get a partnership in japan well, I don't think that's going to happen. For <laughs> <laughs> what, what needs to happen? You know, I am hopeful. I am hopeful. In 1977, we were fighting whaling in Australia. And uh, well, Australia was a whaling nation. And now Australia is one of the biggest defending defenders of whales in, in the, uh, on the world stage. So, you know, I, I do think that uh, all the people come around, Japan if, will come around eventually. If you can think back then, what, what made Australia change? Well, I think that, uh, you know, our interventions uh, garnered a lot of publicity and, uh, you know, people became more and more aware of it. This just wasn't an acceptable activity. Uh, with Japan, though, we have a major success. Uh, we, uh, you know, the Japanese whaling fleet's no longer operating in the Southern Ocean Whale Sanctuary. And for the first time, Southern Ocean Whale Sanctuary is a sanctuary. And as of two years ago, uh, there is no whaling in international waters. The first time in the history of industrialized whaling, not a single whale was killed in international waters. So whaling has now been restricted to uh, Japan and Norway and Denmark, primarily Iceland, but officially they haven't killed any whales in the last couple of years there. But uh, Norway is now the number one whaling nation and Japan is number two. And I think that whaling is going to die out naturally in the next five or six years because it only survives because of massive government subsidies. There's no real profit in it. So, uh, you know, when we started, I would say since I, I began in 1975 to oppose whaling to now, about 95% of all whaling operations have been shut down. So it's really a mopping up uh, situation with the, with the remaining 5%. And, and do you think that will start to shut down because the subsidies will start to decline? Or 
Well, there's really no demand, and uh, it's it's only held up politically uh, because of Japan. It's a popular thing. One of the reasons when people say to us, "Well, why don't you go and uh, oppose whaling in Japan right now?" That was the, the Japanese government would love us to do that because that would help ignite the nationalistic fervor that they use to protect their their the whaling operations. We're just going to let it die a natural death, you know, because uh, we're not going to get involved. There's so many other things that we have to address. And one of the things that kills more marine mammals than anything else is um, is industrialized fishing. Yeah. Now, right now we have a ship in the, in the Bay of Biscay protecting dolphins from the French fishing fleet where about 10,000 dolphins a year are being killed. And so that's a major fight for us. Yeah, so in, in the documentary, um, it was exposed about the potentially fallen practice of the Dolphin Safe uh, verified logo. Um, so in effect, if you're eating tuna, you may well be funding the slaughter of dolphins and whales and sharks. Um, what should the large FMCG brands be doing now that this information has basically been exposed? Well, uh, we've never really supported that because there has never been any way to prove that, um, you know, th these are, dolphins weren't killed in the nets. I mean, we see it all the time when we go to, out there. So just slapping a label on a can of tuna is not going to, to do the trick. And that um, we just need to leave the tuna alone, uh, you know, and shut down. But here's the other problem. <clears throat> Excuse me. Here's the other problem. 50, 60, 100 million dollars are being spent to build an industrialized fishing vessel. That means they got to catch an awful lot of fish just to pay back the bank for the loans that they got us. So there's, you know, it's just, and then, and then they get the subsidies from the governments and everything else like that. There's just, it's a vicious circle. They have to catch more fish to pay off the loans. They got to get more loans to build more boats. And uh, it's just uh, the fish don't have a chance. You know, for, for thousands of years in Polynesia, the shamans uh, would have, they had this thing called kapu. Kapu means, um, well, it was, a, it was a law, meaning if you fish in this bay, say in Bora Bora, and uh, in, a, in that 20-year period, then it was a death penalty. And people say, well, that's a little extreme, but not from their point of view. From their point of view, if the fish disappeared, they would die. And therefore, they took it very, very seriously. So kapu was a very, very stringent uh, law. But today, there is no kapu. There is no place for the fish to hide. In fact, Rayathon, the fish finding company with their fish finding device, the motto is the fish can run, but they can't hide. And that's the problem. They can't hide. There's nowhere to go to escape uh, our, our greed. And, you know, we're taking all these fish out, you know, and the other problem is aquaculture, you know, well, and then their argument is, well, if we raise the fish on aqua farms, uh, then we don't have to take fish from the ocean. But that's a big lie, because it takes about 70 fish caught from the ocean to raise one salmon on a salmon farm. So uh, a great percentage of the fish that are being caught at sea are being rendered into fish meal to feed domestic salmon. It's just it's crazy. Um... What did you see as your own personal highlights from producing the documentary and now seeing the end result of the documentary come to life? Well, I think that, uh, you know, we uh, were involved with the, the making of Cowspiracy, which is about the meat industry back in uh, a few years ago, and uh, yeah. by Kip Anderson. And so Ellie Tabrizi uh, was working with Kip Anderson to... Uh, yeah. To, uh, by the way, how, how did you get, get involved with that uh, at that early stage? Uh, we were approached to just do interviews uh, by, okay. by people on that. And right. so uh, 
when they came up with this idea for sea spirits, we said that that's that's really neat, something that's really needed to show that it's uh, not just the meat industry, but it's also you know the fishing industry too. Uh, they're equally responsible here. Uh, you know, we kill about sixty-five billion animals every year uh, for the meat industry, but we kill a lot more fish than sixty-five billion on that. And a great part of that is going to feed um, the victims of the meat industry. Yeah, totally. And the meat industry is uh, the largest contributor to greenhouse gases uh, emissions. It's the largest contributor to, to groundwater pollution, the largest contributor to dead zones in the ocean. Yeah. And, you know, when uh, volunteers come in your, your boat, they serve vegan food, uh, which is fantastic. Yeah, all the ships are vegan. Now, no, you don't have to be vegan to join the crew, but you have to be vegan while you're on the crew. <laughs> right, right. And um, maybe, you know, when they when they come off the boat afterwards, you know, um, because they haven't been consuming animal products where at the point of their death, uh, they had negative energy, is my, my point of view, then maybe their perceptions will start to change. They be, be, become a bit more conscious. Well, yeah, we, we don't believe in proselytizing. So what we do is serve by example. So uh, many, many people who have served on the boats have come off and become vegans because of their experience. They, they, they realize that they, they didn't die <laughs> on a vegan diet and uh, that, in fact, they felt a lot better. Yeah. And so tell me a little bit more about your background story. And I, it would be great to hear about, you know, the experience that you had with a family of beavers, I think when you were like nine or 10 years old, right? Yeah, I was raised in, like I said, an Eastern Canadian um, fishing village. And uh, when I was 10, I spent a summer swimming with a family of beavers, uh, you know, in the woods nearby. And, uh, you know, I had a great time. It was a wonderful time, you know, just 10 year old, just me and the beavers. Uh, the next summer I went back and I couldn't find the beavers and I found out that trappers had uh, taken them all over the winter and that made me very angry. So that winter I began to walk trap lines and free the animals and destroy the traps. And uh, so I began uh, really as an activist at, at 11. Uh, I was also a member of a group called the Kindness Club back then. And, uh, you know, Ida Fleming, who was, who was the wife of the, pre, of the premier of New Brunswick at the time, she did later described me as a hitman for the Kindness Club. But um, then I was the youngest uh, co-founder of Greenpeace when I was uh, 18. I left uh, Greenpeace when I was 26 to set up Sea Shepherd. And the reason being is I just felt protesting was very submissive. And I felt that it had to be, we had to intervene to actually do something to, to shut this down. Yeah, and um, your background's amazing to also have realized that from such a young age, right? And, and to have that as your life's mission. Well, I never knew it was going to be my life's mission. <laughs> uh, you know, these things just all fall into, fell into place and that. But I was involved with, you know, disrupting duck hunts and things like that, too. I, you know, so, and being raised in a fishing village, I saw firsthand uh, the destruction that was caused by the fishing fleets that were there. And what, what would you say is next for uh, Sea Shepherd? Uh, where are you focusing your attention next? Well, Sea Shepherd has become a, a movement. There are about 42 different countries, and we operate a dozen ships. And uh, so those go, ships go where they're needed. And um, 
So it's hard to really, I can't really say. I mean, the decisions that are made on where to go and what to go do are, are made by the directors and by the captains and, and everybody getting together. Where we see a need, then we go to it. So right now, uh, you know, there's a need to protect dolphins in the in the Bay of Biscay. We're doing anti-poaching operations in the Mediterranean and off of West Africa and East Africa and uh, in the waters of the Eastern Tropical Pacific, in the Baltic. Uh, so... Uh, I, I can't even keep track of the campaigns that we're, we're, we're doing right now because they're so uh, diverse and all around the, around the planet. And what are the ways that people can help you with your mission? Well, people can, uh, you know, volunteer to uh, join our ships as crew members or as shore supporters uh, helping on shore or as contributors. And, uh, you know, Sea Shepherd doesn't, we don't spend money on fundraising. We don't have direct mail campaigns. We don't do telephone solicitations. We're not on the street asking for money or anything. People come to us. And uh, because we want to ensure that when somebody donates a dollar or a pound a euro, that that's where it goes is the operation of the ships and the campaigns. The result has is, is that we're relatively small compared to some of the larger organizations because those larger organizations put a lot of their money back into fundraising and building up their their their, their base. And uh, but we feel that passion is more important than money. So if it wasn't for our volunteers, <clears throat> you know, we wouldn't be successful. And uh, I think that we accomplished a, a lot just based on uh, on that that kind of passion. I've always said that if you want to change the world, you just have to harness your passion to courage and imagination, and and you can do it. Yeah. And, and what's been the um, the rea initial reactions to Seaspiracy? Um, have you started seeing an influx of uh, new volunteers already? Well, I believe that we are getting a lot of uh, support because of it. Uh, I thought it was interesting that a lot of the seafood companies were uh, were criticizing the movie before they even saw it. Uh, one of them, they were saying this full of gross information inaccuracies. And I'm going, well, you didn't even see the movie. So how could you say that? Yeah. But that's typical. That's what they did with Blackfish was released. Uh, uh, you know, uh, SeaWorld and everything attacked them before they even saw the film saying it was full of gross in inaccuracies. And, and uh, in fact, that ended up helping uh, the distribution of, uh, of Blackfish. So I'm hoping that uh, the, their, their criticism will do the same for Seaspiracy. Yeah. And I think this is this will turn into a social movement uh, is, is my wish, right? Where, where we start to protect and heal effectively. Yeah. And that, and so it's, um, you know, it's a difficult thing. And there's, like I said, there's 8 billion people on the planet and a lot of people are dependent upon uh, fishing, but the, the people that are dependent upon fishing are really people who live in small communities uh, in, you know, in third world countries primarily. I mean, there's really no reason for somebody in Denver, Colorado, or in Paris to be eating uh, Chilean sea bass in a restaurant from caught and transported thousands of miles to where they are. Uh, and that, so, you know, there is a, you know, we have to have change, but uh, we have to, we have to disregard this whole concept of sustainability. You know, there really isn't anything sustainable about it. It's just a word that's used for marketing. Yeah. And um, are you plant-based yourself? Yes, and, and very much so. And uh, um, I think it's not only it's healthier, it's certainly healthier for the planet. It's healthier for each of us as a, for our own health as individuals. Yeah. And do, do you think 
you know, more people should be talking about the, the dietary side in, in relation to, you know, our environment, ecology and mankind going forward? I think more people are, uh, and certainly are. There's the, back in the 70s, nobody knew what a vegan was, you know. And uh, of course, uh, now it's people are much more aware, much more aware of it uh, than that. And there are a lot of innovative things that are coming with uh, plant-based foods, uh, you know, with a Beyond Meat and Possible Burgers, things like that. Uh, you know, a lot of vegans are opposed to um, lab-manufactured uh, meat or whatever that happens. But if if it, if it's not going to uh, affect the environment and it's not going to uh, cause um, you know kill animals uh, or animals are going to suffer i don't see anything wrong with it right there so anything is a better alternative i know that people are attacking the uh, impossible burger and beyond meat stuff because they were saying that uh, it's uh, I, I don't know the, why they were attacking it but you know the the impossible burger was actually uh created for meat eaters it wasn't created for vegans it was created for so to give meat eaters an alternative and i think it's working out that way yeah, I definitely agree. I mean, that's that's the market that that needs to be changed. And I think, you know, even if um, if uh, everybody just swapped out one meal a week, uh, I think that would lead to to great change. And if you're already having one one meal, which is a plant based meal, then do two meals or three meals until you or decide to go 100 percent. Right. That's that's what we want to try and do. Right. Okay, great. So uh, really appreciate you coming on the show um, and spending the time with me and I really uh, commend you for all the work that you've done over the years and also the new work that you're doing. And um, yeah, just wish you the best of luck. Well, thank you very much. Okay, take care. Thank you, bye. Bye-bye.